I'm going to read some scriptures as we get, get on here, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to start with just diving right into our subject, okay? Um, normally, if you've been here for the last year, I read a passage and I preach right out of that one passage. It's called expositional teaching, but I'm going to do something a little different today, okay? So, um, so here we are. Um, it's for you guys. It's kind of like okay, fine. Oh, no more announcements. At least it's been like seven months for the staff. We've just been we've been like going and going and going. So we're kind of excited to be here. I'm glad that you're all here. I'm glad you're almost all your Senate for a small group. That's amazing, and I'm trusting it's going to be a really great eight weeks. Um, uh, we're going to be uh, worshiping, discussing, reading, and serving together, um, and the focus is going to be. Um, on the gospel. What, what, what is the gospel and how do we live it out in our whole lives, in our own life personally and in our community and in the world? The first week and the last week are going to be about the city. This week we're going to talk about our, the city in which we live. Next week we're going to talk, or week eight we're going to talk about the city we're going to live in, the heavenly city. Um, weeks two and three are going to be, we're going to be looking beyond sin as just moral mistakes and to begin to see sin is a lot bigger. And the minute we see sin is a lot bigger as self-righteousness and self-salvation and idolatry, the gospel's going to get a lot bigger. And that's going to be really cool. And then um, weeks four and five, we're going to talk about the new community that Jesus creates. How Jesus creates a new people and how that new people interacts with the people they're among. And then in week six and seven, we're going to talk about how Jesus affects our totally normal lives, like our work and how we, we live for justice in the people in which we live. Um, because it might be a little bit odd if we're going to do eight weeks on the gospel. Why are we talking about the city the first week? Does that, I don't know if that frustrates anybody else. You're like, okay, shouldn't we be talking about Jesus and like us being saved? And that? I mean, why are we going to talk about the city the first week? And, um, and, and here's, here's what I want to say about that. I'm going to say a lot really fast, so you may want to go back and listen to this again online, um, because I think there's a lot of really good reasons why we should start with a city. Um, because the present city we live in um, is the thing we're simultaneously supposed to die to and die for. And if we can't get our heads around that, we can't figure out what it means to be a Christian in our real life. That's the bottom line. And if we don't start with a city, if we start with your sins and my sins and Jesus dying for our sins, guess what we end up, we end up hearing the gospel as being particularly about us, don't we? It becomes immediately self-focused. And one of the first things we've got to recognize about the gospel, that the reason why you're special is because you're just like everybody else. The reason that God loves you isn't because you're special, because you're a beautiful little snowflake that there's never been anything like you ever in the history of the world. That's not true. The reason why Jesus loves you is because you're just like everybody else, because you're a human being, and just like everybody else, you bear his very image, and he loves you and desires for you to be with him and belong to him and to know him because you're just like everyone else, because you're human. And until we get recognized that, we will always see favor that people give to us is something we deserve because we're different from everybody else. That's the default of everybody's psychology because we're so self-centered. And that has nothing to do with why God loves you. God loves you because you're like everybody else in the city. You're just a human being, and you need him. And he knows what you can become as a human being. 
So, okay, this morning what I want to do is I want to I try to help us see why the city is so important and why understanding a theology of the city is so critical to us living out the gospel. And I want to basically do it in this way. I want to basically say three things. Um, I want to say three things about Christianity of the city. The first is, is that real Christianity flourishes in urban, diverse, secular, troubled cities. It doesn't die. It flourishes. Second, I want to say God loves and loves us with cities. He not only does he love the city, but he uses the city to love and change us. That the city itself is a tool God uses to transform you and me. And then thirdly, and probably very rapidly, I'm going to, I want to say that it is, it's God's will to send his people into cities to live. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. And it's not that everybody's going to live in a city. You've got to have Christians everywhere. There's people. But it is a privilege to be a Christian in the city. And I want to help us try to embrace that, okay? Sound okay? This means yes, this means no. Okay. We're all really awake right now. So first, um, real Christianity flourishes in urban, diverse, troubled cities. The fact of human history is that the more urban, the more pluralistic, the more troubled a city, the more real Christianity has always flourished. That's a, just a historical fact. Now, here's the problem with that. 99% of us don't believe that. We don't believe that. Um, we believe that the more urban, the more secular, the more educated, the more pluralistic a context is, um, the less the gospel is going to flourish. We, we really believe that the city squeezes out the gospel. We believe that people in the city are too resistant, they're too cynical, they're too jaded about the gospel. They came to the city because they didn't like their family going to church out in some small town. They came to the city because it was secular to get away from those religious people, and they're incredibly resistant to it. And those of us who are spiritual and Christian in the city, are sort of this last sort of declining vanguard of people that we're just going to be faithful, but people aren't going to like us and we're not going to really reach anybody. And gosh, we sure hope that those churches in the South are doing well. <laughs> and they are actually, which is cool. But um, we do not have to believe that we are some doomed bunch of holdouts and in fact, if we believe that, even if on the other side we believe we really believe in Jesus and that all those people are wrong anyway and it's great, but if what we really believe is we're the squished minority holdout that's just going to flop around and die eventually, um, it's ultimately going to poison your faith because it's false. It's, it's a fundamental belief that the gospel really isn't powerful or that God is really absent. He has left us. But the Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible talks in a way that where if there's anybody left in a city, God is interested in it. Do you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible? Why did God destroy that city? Not because there were a lot of sinners in it. There were plenty of sinners in the city of Sodom, right? Plenty of sinners. But the problem was there were no believers left. There was nobody who wanted to, to live for the good and redemption of that city. And that's really sad. Um, but so, so, okay, so why do we believe that? The reason we believe that is because of 
something I'm going to talk about in a second, but partly because we've all bumped into what we think are two pretty decent anecdotal data points for why Christianity just dies in cities. The first is we've all seen bright, young, sincere Christians go to cities and lose their faith. We've all seen that. They go off to college, they go to UW, they take a class in Foucault, and they realize that their youth pastor was a big idiot and doesn't know anything about real life, and so now they're going to be whatever, I don't know. Right? We've, we've seen that lots of times, and what we've seen is when, when people go to the, the city, sometimes it's extremely acidic to their faith. And we go, oh, cities are bad for Christianity. Or we look at Europe, right? And church attendance in most of Western Europe is like 2%, right? That's supposed to be Christian Europe, and it's the most industrially advanced society in the world. And so as Europe became more industrial and more urban and more secular and more educated and more university-centered, Christianity declined simultaneously. And look at that. Isn't it clear that secularization undoes religion, right? And for a long time, um, a good bit of the 20th century, this is what sociology taught us, right? It was a view, if those of you taking it, and, and those of you who know anything about sociology, I am going to butcher my explanation of secularization the- theory, and I do know that, so just so you know. Um, but uh, there was a, a, there's this view that was very prominent from bef- a little bit before the 1960s until about the middle of the 1990s called secular- the secularization thesis. And the idea basically was that the more industrialized, the more urban, the more secular, the more, um, the more educated an, an urban center became, the less traditional religious forms of any kind would survive. Um, and it was, there was a book in 1965 by a Harvard professor named Harvey Cox called The Secular City that sold a million copies. And the basic thesis was Christianity flourished in small, isolated, homogenous communities, rural communities. But now the cities are growing and people are living in more diverse places. Christianity is going to be on the decline and going, going away. You might get people who are somehow Christianly spiritual, but you're not going to get people who believe in things like the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible is God's inspired word. Mary was no kidding a virgin when she got pregnant with Jesus. Like, the sort of the doctrinal formation, or, or that they come to church. That the idea that there could be some kind of organization, that's all going to go away. Um, and the, the argument was, is that, when, you know, Christianity is just going to look silly to pluralists. It's one thing if you live in a, some country hick town in, like, Kentucky, and everybody's a Christian, and that's all they've ever heard of, and nobody even knows—they don't even know that there's Hindus, and of course those people are all going to be Christians. But when you live in—on Devon Street in Chicago, and you've got Pakistanis, and you've got Indians, and you've got, you know, you've got African Americans, and you've got, you've got people from all over the world— it doesn't seem like Christianity is the only game in town. And then you start going, well, what should I do? Right? So pluralism, it's just going to make Christianity look silly, right? And the city just contains people that are frankly just too sophisticated for Christianity, right? That sounds perfectly reasonable, doesn't it? And um, when people become more educated and scientific, that's going to lead them away from superstitious and primitive things like religion anyway. Um, and when you look at cities, they contain more profound and widespread social brokenness. And frankly, those kinds of people just need better answers than religion, don't they? Now, one of the unknown facts about the secularization thesis is that sociology as a whole has mostly given it up since about the middle 90s. The problem is that there's always a delay in social consciousness, isn't, it? isn't there? We, uh, there's a lot of things that we know now are false that kind of gotten social consciousness, and we all kind of basically believe them even though they're false. The, um, the problem with the secularization thesis is that it's not true. <laughs> it's just false. It's scientifically speaking. Soci- I mean, we just know it's not true. 
Um, for example, one of the things that killed the secularization thesis in America was in about the 1980s, there was this huge upsurge in conservative, evangelical, organized, doctrine-believing religion. Right at the moment when it was supposed to be just going away because, you know, university professors are really smart, that it just didn't. It just was on this upswing. You had these crazy conservative people out there doing political stuff. And whether or not you liked it, the fact was there was this huge upswing in religious Christianity. It was kind of weird. And then um, when people began to study, why did the church decline in Europe? But yet not, it wasn't on the same kind of decline in America. What's the difference? And people began to see that the real difference was not industrialization and it was not education, but it was that the European church was a state church. And the American church had always been an entrepreneurial church because the more bureaucratic a church was in America, the worse it was doing. You look at the big mainline denominations with their bureaucratic structures and and, um, constitutions that look like the United States government. How are all those churches doing? Terrible. Right? It's not those are it's not they're bad people. It's that the church tends to live and thrive in an entrepreneurial spirit. When we have to get up there and live out the faith ourselves, not let anybody else do it for us, and certainly not let the government do it for us. Right? And so when you looked at the state churches in Europe, they attracted all the most mediocre people. They they had no ability to reform themselves, and and there was no sacrificial giving by the people in the church. The people didn't support the church directly, and so the accountability that comes from an entrepreneurial organization wasn't there. And so it had no ability to revive itself, and it just died. Even in Europe, the entrepreneurial non-state churches, a lot of them are growing, and some of them growing fairly rapidly. But the state churches continue to decline. And in America, the more bureaucratic the churches, almost to the church, predictably, are declining. And the entrepreneurial churches are growing. It's a fundamental sociological difference in the kind of organization it is. And it took a while to figure that out. The other thing is, is that Christianity is actually growing rapidly in urban areas. <laughs> it's just a fact. All over the world, Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds, and it's growing fastest in cities, not in the country. It's just a fact. It's, it's not—well, not, I think it's good, but it's not— it's not, to be, it's not something you have to evaluate morally. It's just a fact. I just got off the phone with a scholar who's studying in, in Asbury Seminary from India. And he said he just got back from India. And he said, he, said, he said, Pastor Nick, my heart is breaking for the Indian church because the rural church is languishing while the city church is exploding. How do we train the rural pastors? How do we get resources to the rural pastors? I said, wait a second, Manohar. Are, are you saying that in India it's the urban churches that are exploding, not the— Yes, but aren't all the most sophisticated, educated, wealthy people in the cities in India, just like here? Well, absolutely. But the church is growing the fastest there. Oh yeah, really fast. Another scholar from China writing in um, the Journal of the Scientific Study of Religion wrote this. Some scholars like to point out that Christian growth in China mostly happens in the underdeveloped rural areas quotes two studies. Given the fact that most of the Chinese population is still rural, it's not surprising that the majority of Christians in China reside in rural areas. However, Chinese Christians are not necessarily more rural than the general population. In other words, the proportion of rural Christians among all Christians may not be higher than the proportion of rural residents in the general population. What he's saying is, he's like, yeah, most of the people in China live out in the country, and so there may be more country Christians than urban Christians. But when you look proportionally Proportionally, the church is growing fastest in the Chinese cities. Particularly, it's kind of funny, he, he, stu- he studies how um, these churches are all, seem to all be meeting in McDonald's. 
And they, they detained this one young Christian who believed in Jesus in this Chinese McDonald's. And they said, they said, um, McDonald's is an, because the charge is an unauthorized worship location in China. And they said, you cannot, you can no longer worship in that McDonald's. And the guy was like, yeah, so I signed it. We're not going to worship anymore in that McDonald's. <laughs> So it is, lit- it is a literal fact right now in the whole world, including the United States, including in Europe, including in Sub-Saharan Africa, including in West Africa, including South Asia, including the whole world, that Christianity is do- doing best in cities among the smartest, most educated, most power having the, the, the most wealthy people in the world and among the poorest, most impoverished, most troubled, most disillusioned. That is where Christianity is the most vibrant, growing the fastest, and the strongest. It's just a fact. And the reason I spent all that time telling you that I want you to be free of this looming idea that there is something about the city that the gospel can't thrive in. And if we would have just read Acts 11, we would have known that. Listen to what it says in Acts 19, 19, 11, 1924. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, who was the first martyr, traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began, to speaking, began speaking to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch, which is interesting because Barnabas is from Cyprus, right? So these people from Cyprus had started this, and they're like, okay, Barnabas, you're our guy, so you go, you go handle this. And remember, in Acts 8, you remember what happened just before this in Acts? Peter figures out the Gospels for Gentiles. That's what happens in chapters 9 and 10 and 11 in Acts. God is showing the Jews that the gospel is for Gentiles also. And Peter finally goes, oh, it's for, it's for Gentiles. And then, right then, this happens on its own. Gentiles start believing in Antioch, and they send Barnabas up to talk to him. It says, then Barnabas went— I'm sorry, when he had arrived, he saw evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, I've always thought that was kind of cool, that— the believers were called Christians first to Antioch, right? That's pretty cool, right? And I always thought what that meant was these guys were real Christians, right? Isn't that what you thought too? These guys are real Christians, and so they really followed Jesus, and they were really serious about God. And so in Antioch, they called them Christians. That's probably not the reason. That's probably not the reason. You know why Antioch was the first place they were called Christians? It's because you couldn't call them anything else. You see, in the whole ancient world, it was basically believed religion is a function of culture. Whatever culture you are, that's the religion you are, and that's just how it goes. In the city of Antioch, they didn't just have a wall around the city. They had 18 walls inside the cities because you couldn't have all the different races and ethnicities working, even going to the same markets and kill each other. There was, there, was, there was very little ethnic mingling because you couldn't. They all had their own religions. They all had their own cultures. They all had their own ghettos. And now there's this group of people from lots of different ethnicities 
When you read in Acts 13 about the leadership of the church, there's five different ethnicities and the first six leaders mentioned. For, for three different continents, there, there's, no, there, there's no mold for this. So, this, yeah, oh, oh yeah, those Jews are here. Well, they're not, none of, I mean, it's just a few Jews. And you've got Persians, and you've got Africans, and you've got Greeks, and you've got Romans, and you've got all these people, and they're all meeting together, and they all believe in the same Jesus and the same Lord. They're all worshiping together. They're not killing each other. What the heck are they? <laughs> and so the, all they did is they just were like, well, what do, what do you guys believe? Well, we believe in Jesus. They're like, well, I guess we're going to be calling you Christians, I guess. That's why— because it was here that they demonstrated this was not just a cultural Jewish sect. This was something for the whole city. And it's important to recognize that because by the time we get to the book of Acts, all of the major Roman cities have a church in them. That's what, that's what the leaders of Acts do. They go right to the cities. Why? Why do they go right to the cities? Are cities better? Are the people in cities more loved by God? No. Cities are the culture-forming womb of the world. Whatever happens in the cities will get to the country. What happens in the country only gets to the city through country music stations. <laughs> right? It, is, it happens in the city first, and then it goes out. And so they realize if they wanted the gospel to reach the whole Roman world, where they go? They went right to the cities. Right to the cities. You can see it if you look on here. Where they planted churches were all the biggest cities. Now, you hear Antioch, and what do you think? Antioch, um, that's probably a city somewhere. Okay, well, that's because um, we don't know anything about Arab history. But Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman world at this time. It was the third largest city. Its population density dwarfed Manhattan, and Manhattan has skyscrapers, and they didn't. It was packed. And that was the first fountainhead of the power of the church. That it took root, and Paul and Barnabas invested a year in building the church of Antioch. And out of that multicultural, troubled, urban, secular, political, socioeconomically diverse city, the church exploded into the whole Roman world. And it went to big cities, and it went to strategic cities. By the end of Acts, now Acts doesn't talk about the church in Alexandria, but we know historically that by the end of Acts, there was already a church in Alexandria. So Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch, the three largest cities in the Roman Empire, had strong churches in them it was on three continents. And they hit all the strategic cities. They hit Corinth. They hit Corinth because it was on a shipping isthmus, and everybody came through there. Right? They had Philippi and Thessalonica because they were major port towns, easy to get to, easy to get in and out of. The gospel would go everywhere. And Ephesus, it was the gateway to all of what they called Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. And it actually says that when Paul spent two years building the church in the city of Ephesus, the result of it was it did go to the country. It says, all Asia heard the gospel. That's what it says. And so it is a fact. And here's the thing. You might think that the cities of the ancient world were somehow different from modern cities. Listen, we are just now beginning to catch up with the problems, the diversity. Our cities are nowhere—Chicago and New York City are nowhere near diver, as diverse as Antioch and Rome 
and Alexandria were. Because, remember, in the were almost all of these cities were formed after wars. Antioch was founded because one of Alexander the Great's generals won many great victories, and as he swept across all of the world that Alexander conquered, he kept pulling in more men and more men. And every time he went another 50 miles, he pulled in another ethnicity, another language, another kind of man. By the time he got to India and China, think about the a number of different ethnicities he'd accumulated in different units in his army. Then Alexander says, you may go and start a city. So he goes and he starts Antioch after Antiochus, his father, and begins a city with his, what? His army, which is incredibly diverse. And so Antioch and Rome and all these cities had enormous cultural differences, enormous levels of diversity, enormous urban problems, enormous wealth, enormous secularity. Don't think that there's something about cities now that's so different that the gospel did okay then, but it can't do okay now. By 1313, which is the date of the Edict of Toleration, meaning that you couldn't kill Christians anymore legally in the Roman Empire, 56% of the urban centers of the Roman Empire were Christian. And... The countryside of the Roman Empire was still largely pagan. In fact, the word pagan comes from the word paganus or pagus, which refers to rural or a country person. Pagan means country person. That is, not a Christian. Because Christians were entirely associated with urban life. Now think about that. Isn't that totally the opposite of how we think? We think, oh man, all those country music stars, they like to sing about Jesus. But you know, when you, you know, urban life, it's totally just about you and whether you have an iPhone and stuff. It's just religion's out in the country, you know? But that's, that was not true in, thir- in 313. Even the, wor- the word heathen, it means somebody living out on the heath. Somebody who doesn't live in the city, who isn't part of the city civilization. The opposite of a Christian. So there's, okay, there's two applications I want us to get from this. The first is, is that Christianity that dies in the city isn't real Christianity. It's not real Christianity. When we think about, like, raising our kids to, with Christianity that makes it, even if you're going to live in the country, you ought to raise them like you're going to send them to the city. Because then you'll, then you'll build into them real Christianity. You have to. You've got to figure out a gospel they can believe in the city, where there's bigger social problems, there's bigger issues, they're going to come against more. If you, can't, if you can't make it in the city, it's not real. And if we believe the gospel as the gospel is— not just a white cultural religion or, or any ethnicity cultural expression or religion. If we live out the gospel, we will make it in the city. The city will hear the gospel. It'll be different. But if we live some kind of self-salvation, Jesus-focused, we're all going to heaven, isn't that great? Because I don't have to be afraid of dying or whatever religion. Then it will not The second is that the city is more open than you think it is. The city is more open than you think it is. The city tends to draw younger brothers rather than older brothers, spiritually speaking. They tend to have real profligate kinds of idols, and they tend to screw up their lives pretty dang fast. And they recognize that something isn't going right. The city tends to be more liberal than the country. The country tends to be more conservative. I don't mean that politically. What all liberal means is 
easily changed. That's all that word's supposed to mean. Conservative means we stay the same. If I change something, there better be a pretty dang good reason why I change it. Because generally speaking, the received wisdom is right. That's what conservative really means. That's what the word means. Liberal means I'll change my mind. I'll change my mind back. I'm just going to follow whatever I think is right right now. So if there's a new idea, I'm going to jump to the new idea. Then if we find out it's wrong, I'll come back. But built into that is a certain kind of openness, ready to believe something different, ready to believe something new. What we think is, when I say we, I'm referring to the Republican conservative type Christians who go here. Um, What we think is, is that liberal people that this city, of course, is full of are anti-Christian, that that's what it means. That's not true. That's not true. They're, They're more changeable. They're more fluid. That actually, if we embrace that, that could mean that there's a remarkable openness to seek new answers for problems they're not finding good answers to. The city is more open than you think it is. That's true. But the poor in the city, oftentimes the poor in the city, are, are more functionally broken because, of, because we've either structurally ghettoized them into a place that's really hard to break out of, because we've created educational systems that there's just no—see, think about this. I grew up in a school where there's a th- there were a thousand kids in the high school, right? Everybody went there. Everybody in the geographical region went there. Didn't matter how rich you were or how poor you were, geographically you were going to that school. So if, if there were sort of poor and rich sections of my town, it didn't matter because there's just one school. Everybody goes, everybody gets the same teacher. It's not true in the city, is it? You go to downtown Chicago and you've got poor schools and rich schools because it's all split up by who buys what house where and can you afford the X number of dollars in taxes. So when I lived in Chicago, in Lake Forest, there was one black kid in the whole school and he was a professional basketball player's son. And I could, I could drive in my car five minutes and get in a school where there were no white kids. None. Five minute drive. In Chicago, you can only go about 20 feet, you know? And that creates more profound social problems. But it also creates the opportunity for more profound witness because if some of those white people and some of those black people would go five minutes and figure out how to love each other, everybody would see that because nobody does it. So the city creates more focused social problems that we can do something about and the opportunity for people to see that there's more people there to see it and it tends to be more unlikely because it's just the way it is in the city because the city pushes us into certain ways of living but if we break out of those ways of living we can, we can get at people who have more profound problems whether it's the profligacy of their living whether it's the fact that they've been jumping from idea to idea until they find something they can really sink their teeth into long term or whether they're living in conditions with extremely profound social problems Either way, if either of those ways, if we believe the gospel, we will find the city more open than we think. Quit being a pessimist. Quit being negative. Quit believing we can't do this. Quit believing that those people do not want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to be annoyed by annoying Christians, but that doesn't mean they don't care about the gospel. And that if you connect their heart narrative, what they're hoping life would be, with how Jesus connects with that, You'll be surprised at the interest. The city is more open than we think it is. And if our Christianity doesn't make it in the city, it's not real Christianity because Christianity that's real, Christianity always thrives in the city. I probably should get to my second point. God loves and loves us with the city. Um, God loves 
the city, okay? Do not let yourself believe that God does not love Madison because there's all these godless people and whatever. Don't let yourself believe. That's not true. That's not true. Assyria um, and Nineveh could not have been a more wicked city. Could not have been a more wicked city. These, these were people who would take over towns and they would— how young kid we got in here? Okay, I'll be careful. They, they would impale people in ways that if I explained it, you would either cringe or throw up. Okay? To show just how dominant. They didn't have a lot of people, but they wanted to conquer the whole world, so they couldn't afford to fight battles with a lot of losses, so they were just brutal beyond imagination. That was kind of their shtick. Right? Just beyond imagination. Hated by the Jewish people because they were hated by everybody. One of the most oppressive peoples ever in the history of the world. And what did God say about that city? Do you remember what God said about the city when he sent Jonah there? He said this. He said, but Nineveh, this is God talking, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people. And what does he say about their moral depravity? They're people that can't tell their right hand from their left. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? If you understand what Nineveh was, and God says that, that ought to do something to us, shouldn't it? When he says, they're they're just, they don't get it. They don't see it. What they're doing, they're doing, and they don't. And even even the dogs and cats mean something to me. I care about the city. Shouldn't I be concerned about it, Right? And, um, and that's the exact same thing. Later on, what does God do to the evil city of Babylon? He sends the Jewish people to live among them. He says, pray for them, live among them, seek their prosperity and peace because God loves Babylon, the next generation of the worst, most sinful city in the history of the world, right? And then Roman leaders called Rome the sewer to which everything depraved in the world flows to. And what did Paul say about that? He said, oh, I want to go to Rome. <laughs> I want to go to Rome. I want to go there. I want to build a church there. I, t- I want the church to affect that city. And then what did Jesus say? He spent a lot of time out in rural places at the beginning of his ministry because they wouldn't kill him there. But finally he had to go and he had to face the city. He comes to Jerusalem and he says, and he's talking with some religious leaders and the Pharisees came to Jesus and they said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you, right? The power of the city is going to kill you, right? And he replied, you go and you tell that fox that I will drive out demons and I will heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day for surely a prophet can't die outside Jerusalem. And then he said this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often, how often I have longed to gather you, to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you weren't willing. That's how Jesus felt about the city of Jerusalem. Everybody he sent them. As God Almighty, they kill. <laughs> they kill him. They're going to kill him. And what's his heart? His heart is, oh, Jerusalem. I just want to. 
I just want to lay my feathers over you and pull you into that soft down and heat, that cozy place, so that you could hatch into what you've always been meant to be. I want that for you. That's, that's God's heart for the city. Shouldn't I be concerned about that great city? God loves the city, but you know what else? He wants to love us with the city. He wants to make us face the city because of what it's going to do to us. We are not a favor to the city. The city is just as much a favor to us. It will affect us if we engage with it. Um, one of the things, we're going to find two things. Uh, there's two applications. I want to make of this real fast. That's, I guess, three. Um, look at two and three there. The city will corrode your self-righteousness. Here's one thing you're going to face in the city. When you're a Christian, you think you're a pretty good person, right? You think you're a pretty good person. I'm a Christian. I'm a pretty good person, right? I'll stop lying. Of course you do. Um, but here's the problem. You're going to have a neighbor in the city. You're going to have a lot of neighbors in the city. Guess what you're going to find? You're going to find your Hindu neighbors just as nice a guy as you. That's what you're going to find. I just had um, new neighbors move in from somewhere in Asia. I know where, but I don't want to, you know. Um, and uh, talk to them. They're great people. I think they're Buddhist. Uh, they're fantastic. He's nicer than I am, I think, by a good bit. And... Um, and that's one of the things the city will do to you, is it'll start to break down yourself, right? You see people that aren't Christians? They're not, they're not regenerate heart. They're not, they're not even trying to do what you're trying to do, but they're really nice people. They've got better ideas than us. They know more than us. They know how to fish, fix social problems better than us. They, they do, a, they do in a disturbingly amount better than us. And if, and if we don't realize, the only thing different about us is that we've been saved by God's action, by grace, where we've been rescued. I mean, it's a little weird going like, you're on a boat, right? And you get pulled overboard, you're about to drown, and you're like, I'm here, I'm the captain, give me the hat. Like, it's a little bit odd, but that's what we think. Why? Because even after we believe the gospel, we still try to save ourselves and show how important we are and how cool we are and how good we are and how we're better than everybody else. And we're still invested in this idea that because we're Christians, we ought to be better. And we're not. And the city will help us with that because the city has all these really smart, really educated, sharpest knife in the drawer kind of people. And then we end up bouncing up against them. We find out that all we are is a Christian. That's all. And it doesn't appear to be much of an advantage in a lot of things, and it'll humble us. It can. It can humble us. Here's what else. You might experience a more complete church, right? If we're in the city and we're like a church at Antioch, we could be as diverse as the city. And the cities are the most diverse places in the countries, in the country, right? You could experience a church much more like heaven, much more like we ought to want to experience. We could be, Don Carson says this, the church is a place where all kinds of people who would be naturally, are, who are naturally enemies love one another for Jesus' sake. The church should not be full of people who would be naturally your friends. The church ought to be full of people who would be naturally your enemies, but you love for Jesus' sake. And the city op allows for that. I mean, think about it, Madison, right? Think about this, right? Politically divided, educationally divided, socioeconomically divided, racially divided. I mean, we got lot—we're a capital city, so there's all kinds of stuff to be divided about, right? We're a little bit of a divided city, wouldn't you say? Track record of the last year? I mean, think of if we look—if we were just as diverse as the city, just as artistically savvy as the city, just as rich and poor as the city, we represented the city, but we loved each other for Jesus' sake. Wouldn't that be interesting? That'd be pretty cool. And 
it would be seen in the divided city, right? Lastly, and very quickly, is um, it is God's will, sorry, it is God's will to send his people into cities. Now listen, it's very hard to say this right. You're gonna, people are going to come to me and say, Nick, are you saying everybody should live in the city? Um, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. Um, but what I, here's what I'm saying is, um, evangelicals or Christians who believe in the Bible and the gospel live disproportionately outside of cities. America has a city-hating culture. You go, to, you go to England, people think, think London's fantastic. You know, you go, to, you go to the Czech Republic, people love Prague. You go to different places in the world, people are proud of their cities. In America, we're not proud of our cities. We had an ugly industrial revolution. We were really bad to poor people. We've got all kinds of novels to show for it. And we, do, we just don't really like cities. Some people like cities, but we're not a city-loving country. We're not as proud of New York as the Brits are of London. It's just not the case. You go to Mumbai, and the Indian people, they're proud of their cities. They think Delhi is incredible. But evangelicals live disproportionately outside of cities, and so we have disproportionately less, less influence in the city. But more importantly, we serve and love the cities at a disproportionately small amount. Why do African Americans have more cultural influence than their numerical stature? Well, here's why. They live almost 100% in cities. That's why. It's one of the reasons. Gay people. What percentage of the population? Very minuscule. Enormous amount of power for the percentage. Why? Well, the conservative countryside pushes them all into a few cities. So they're in Manhattan, Chicago, Madison, they're in the cities, they're, and, and they're just—all they're doing is living their lives in the cities. They take the jobs in the cities, and those jobs have to, happen to be in TV studios, as aides to politicians, as school board superintendents, as media company presidents. They just take the jobs, and guess what? They just act like themselves. That's what we all do. And they have more influence, and they, and they deserve it, because they live in the city, and they, they live their lives— in the city, right? But evangelicals, we live out of the city. We don't like the city. We distrust the city. We don't want to be in the city. We think the city is ugly and dirty and dehumanizing. And listen, all that's true. All that's true. I don't know if you've been to South Side of Chicago. It's not pretty. There are places in Madison that aren't pretty. There are negative things about the city. There's a lot of power in the city. There's a lot of idolatry in the city, right? There's a lot of art in the city. There's a lot of unennobling art pouring out of the city, right? But for all the things that are good about the city, reasons we should love the city, they all have their negative corresponding truth, right? But God loves the city and wants to love you with the city. He wants you to go in and to be part of it. Let me just end real fast with this passage. Um, when, and you're going to study this in your small groups this week, so you'll get a better, a better shot. So I just want to prime the pump a little bit. Um, when, when God sent the people of Israel in exile out of Israel, he sent them to the, to the city of Babylon, a totally pagan city. The Babylonians wanted them to go in the city and lose their cultural identity. The Jews wanted to stay outside the city, use its resources, but keep their cultural identity by not mixing. But God, what God said is, he says this, look at verse 5, build houses and settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number, do not decrease. And then he says this, and, and a few verses later, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you. But right after that, he says, right, right, right after, I don't know where I'm going here. After, after verse seven there, he says, 
pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city. And then a few verses later, he says, I know I have a plan for you, a plan to prosper you. Think about that. God was linking sending his people into the city to live for the city's peace and prosperity to his plan for their peace and prosperity. Well, what God is ultimately saying is what he says, always says in the gospel, you live to love and serve the people you're around. Forget about your prosperity and your peace. Li- serve the peace and the prosperity of the people you're around and you will have peace and prosperity. That's how I bring it. That's how I do it. That's how I've always, how I've always done it. And so... Um, what we need to recognize about the city, if we want to let the gospel come to us and to go out living in a city that we live in, and this is not particularly urban, this is not a tough city to live in. I'll just, let's just put that right out on the table, okay? But God sent us to the city not to resemble it or to be removed from it, but to serve it and love it. And it is only by embracing that calling can we be a gospel-focused people as a church and a gospel-focused person as an individual. Because only by embracing God's will for your life can you find out God's will for your life. It's just just one of those hard equations. But if we will, we will find out what the gospel's about individually, together as a church, and in our city and in our world. It'll be really, really exciting. So embrace that and and really try to pull in as much as you can this week a theology of the city and how related that is to the gospel. Will you? You're going to have to sprint to your groups, those of you who are meeting this morning. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a gospel-focused people, people who have the gospel in our lives. We want want to grow spiritually. We want to be the kind of people you've made us to be. Father, we pray that you'd help us to start out with a theology of the, the world that we can't leave behind, the world that we have to die to before we can die for, the, the world that we have to seek its peace and prosperity, and that is the means by which you want to bring to us the peace and prosperity that comes from the gospel. And Father, we pray that um, you would help us to embrace that deeply, and instead of remove ourselves or resemble the city, to be a people who love it and serve it. We pray that you'd bless this endeavor these next eight weeks. We pray that you'd build an excitement in us and that you'd do something among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand? Let's have a benediction together. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. John will be there. Your groups are there or up there. The next service is going to be there. Thank you for coming and go in peace.